Welcome to Sentient Developments Radio, transhumanist and techno-progressive perspectives on science, philosophy, ethics, and the future of intelligent life. My name is George Dvorsky, and you're listening to the audiocast of my blog, Sentient Developments. Topics discussed on this program include human enhancement, bioethics, and emerging technologies, cosmology, metaphysics, spirituality, gender issues, animal welfare, and much, much more. So sit back, relax, and open your mind to Sentient Developments Radio. Greetings and welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. I'm George and I'll be your host for the episode. And I've got several articles lined up for today's episode. I'm going to recap the talk that I gave at the Center for Inquiry a couple of weeks ago and talk about how that went, including the uh, rather intense Q&A period that uh, happened after the talk. And I'm also going to talk about just a couple of things that I've been using these days online that might be of help to you guys, including Twitter Yes, I'm Twittering now, and I'm also using Google Docs, both personally, like uh, for my own uh, writing, and also at work, through com- the work that we're doing at Commune Media. So I'll just share that and uh, explain why it's been working for us. And as for the uh, articles for the day, or for the episode, I'm going to talk about the male birth control pill and why men are going to have to probably fight for their right to be able to access the male birth control pill and why it's in uh, the male best interest to work to achieve such a thing. And I'm also going to complete the, uh, the, the third part of my series on uh, the Fermi Paradox. Again, this is a, an adaptation of the talk that I gave at Transvision last year in Chicago, and it'll be the third part, which is what advanced civilizations do in fact do, what they might actually be doing uh, post-singularity in a way that's, that doesn't violate the observations that we're making from uh, that, uh, the, uh, that the Fermi Paradox presents so some uh, basically some solutions to the fermi paradox and some next steps uh, in regards to how we should treat uh, the the issue that is the great silence all right that's lots to talk about today so uh, without further ado let's get started and i will see you on the other side of this track April the 18th, I spoke at the Center for Inquiry, the Ontario branch. I was invited to speak about transhumanism and life extension, and I was speaking to uh, pretty much an audience that uh, 
uh, I'd say about half of them had put up their hands when I asked them if they had heard about transhumanism before. And uh, the talk was really meant to be an introduction to the whole idea. And I framed it in that, that sort of a way. And again, uh, I'm no stranger to speaking to an audience that are new to these sorts of ideas. I pretty much know what to expect. But this was a bit different, and I think uh, it's, it was probably a bit different considering who the audience really, who they were and who they were composed of. And the Center for Inquiry, I mean, they're critical thinkers. They tend to be skeptics of the highest order and, uh, a, you know, a, a learned bunch. And uh, I basically got a taste of that in the Q&A afterwards. So I spoke for about an hour and introduced them to the uh, ideas. And again, I tried to weave in... To, to, again, to kind of uh, create a sense of cohesiveness with where the people from the Center of Inquiry were coming from, ties to uh, secular humanism and the Enlightenment project. And then I tied that into the whole uh, life extension thing. And uh, afterwards, during the Q&A session, I got some questions that were not the usual set of questions that I get at these types of events. They were a bit tougher, I'd say. The questions were a bit deeper, a bit more probing. And uh, not to say that... Um, not to say that some some of the, I mean some of the questions were still I think a bit frustrating. That uh, people they jump to conclusions very quickly, they make generalizations and false assumptions about what exactly I'm saying, and put words into my mouth. For example, I get there's the charge again that I'm um, I'm utopian, and you know I'm sure I'm talking about radical life extension. I'm talking about the potentials for cybernetics and regenerative medicine, and suddenly that makes me utopian. And uh, again, I don't, I don't uh, deal well with that, and I immediately will, will nip those accusations in the butt, and I say, you know, where, where in my talk do you even hear me utter those words? And again, I, what I, when I tried to steer them back towards what was said during the time of the Enlightenment by uh, thinkers like Condorcet and Diderot, who said uh, we should really apply reason and science to continually improve things. What they were talking about is perpetual progress, not any kind of perfectibility or end-state end utopianism. So I made that clear. Uh, some of the Q&A people during the, the Q&A period, uh, in a way, almost were pointing their fingers at me as if I were somehow responsible for the rates of technological change and some of the uh, perhaps the scarier or, or more um, uh, disruptive technologies that are coming down the path. So again, well, there's really nothing really that needs to, needs to be said about that. Um, other people also took me to task on some of my notions about uh, trying to reduce suffering or even ending it altogether, what's known as abolitionism, which is something that I'm generally in favor of, which not only uh, I think ties into some of my transhumanist leanings, but also from my Buddhist sensibilities. But uh, some of the questions were, well, if we're to abolish suffering, and again, this is the same old um, this is the same old argument again that if you know we need that we need suffering to give ourselves a sense of purpose. But really, the, the question that I got was more phrased that if we if we do end suffering and there's no so-called evil. Uh, in, in our lives anymore. How can we retain a sense of objectivity when it comes to determining uh, a sense of value and worth? And that was an interesting question. And uh, I attempted to answer that again by simply stating that, you know, each individual themselves has to really come up with their own idea of what is, what is valuable and uh, what gives their life worth, whether it be simply the ability to experience as many things as possible or simply just a uh, uh, to be engaged in life and to be engaged with uh, with other individuals and to socialize. But ultimately, when it comes to values uh, and even a sense of morality, I do like to think that there is an ethics that can be applied and uh, just as importantly, I guess, a, sen a legal sense, a judicial sense of how 
we have a sense of right and wrong, what's good conduct versus bad conduct, antisocial conduct, and so on, so that these things will be codified and that these are objective things, that they will be known at all times, regardless of any kind of uh, existential sense that we have in terms of us not not being uh, exposed to undue suffering. So that's why I addressed that one. I was also accused of being a determinist. I was, again, speaking of, you know, how we're inevitably headed toward a technological singularity and there's nothing we can do about it and rates of accelerating change and so on and so forth. And you know what? To a certain degree, I actually will accept that accusation. And I've said it before. I, I am somewhat of a technological determinist. I think there's somewhat of a, a mythology at place. Well, first of all, determinism is such a bad word, isn't it? You're not allowed to be a determinist. You're not allowed to say that there are things beyond human control. And I think that's somewhat... I think that's somewhat arrogant to think that we're in complete control of our destiny. I think that uh, as technologies are developed, what happens is, yes, we have a certain degree of control over the types of technologies that come into existence, but what we don't have control over are the negative ways in which these technologies are used, whether it be through warfare, through uh, terrorist acts, these sorts of things, or even the kinds of accidents that can happen as a result of uh, bringing in these technologies. So what happens is, is that we have to adapt to technologies. And we are not often in control of the ways in which we must adapt. So this is what I've uh, called adaptationism uh, in, uh, in terms of human development. And uh, in other words, the kinds of social structures that we have to set up, the kind of policing that we have to set up, the kinds of laws that have to be, that have to be put in place the way that we're organized as a species. These are things that oftentimes, and certainly moving into the future, will be determined. Here we go. Determinism will be determined by our, how we have to adapt to these technologies. And that we have no control over because we either will survive or we don't survive. If we don't adapt, well, then we don't survive. And uh, these, the, the ways in which we have to adapt may be unpleasant and may demean our sense of, uh, for example, democratic accountability and freedoms and senses and our sense of privacy. And uh, that's, uh, it's disturbing and upsetting to think about that, but that's something that may await us in the future. So yeah, I am somewhat of a technological determinist because I think ultimately that is what's going to dictate everything moving forward uh, for us as a species. And then finally, I was also, uh, I made a claim that uh, the Chinese are a eugenic nation. And I've, uh, I've made this claim many times before. And again, I, said, I cited their uh, one-child-per-person policy, even though that's becoming a bit more relaxed these days. But I also know that they're actively involved in not necessarily sterilizing the, the population and those that are deemed so-called unfit to reproduce. But I do know that they make an active effort to uh, promote uh, uh, a sense of who is who is uh, who is apt to or uh, who should reproduce versus those who don't. And as I understand it, they have... Uh, uh, these little vans that go or, uh, from from village to village, in which they label people as being, you know, you can you can reproduce and you probably should not, and so on. I'm not sure how enforced that is, but I do understand that that's in effect. That's eugenics. That's ab absolutely eugenics. It's authoritarian, uh, top down prescription as to how the population should reproduce. In other words, the Chinese government has a vision for the people in terms of how they should evolve, how they should look into the future. And again, this is absolutely in tune with Marxism. Marx talked about the new man, and uh, specifically, though, he was talking about it from the frame of uh, an altered sociology, 
and altered social structures and, and of course the, 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 uh, the placement of an ideology and a totalitarian ideology such that everybody would adhere and conform to this ideology and it would create this new man. So the new man was not just a, a new sociological and political construct. It was also an ideologically uh, based construct in which the psychology of the person was so reformed and according, according to Marxist thought it would, would have been a, an enlightened a sort of a, a, a consciousness, an enlightened sort of psychology. But there is no uh, reason to think that that same that same prescription of it of uh, using science to change uh, the human species uh, couldn't be applied to biotechnology. In fact, the Soviets were very aware of this, and they were very much in tune with it. And a big part of their uh, uh, biotechnology sector, as primitive as it was in the fifties and sixties, they engaged in some pretty radical experiments. Uh, including uh, trying to create a, a, an ape-human hybrid, and of course some of their um, psychological experiments in the uh, late '60s, early '70s. So, um, yeah, and again, the, I was kind of put to task that I'm misreading Marx. That Marx would never have agreed to uh, eugenics, and uh, to um, that the Chinese are not actually following Marxism in, in terms of their eugenic policies. And I say that's that's simply wrong. I think people uh, people should probably reread their Marx a bit. Okay, so that's how the talk went on. Uh, so as you can see, yeah, what, what an interesting Q&A period, eh? Uh, don't tend to get those kinds of questions, and I was, it was absolutely my pleasure to be able to answer them, and uh, hopefully I uh, conveyed some of my answers uh, in an articulate and meaningful way. It was a great audience, a great crowd that came out for that event. All right, just very quickly now, I want to talk about, uh, just shifting gears a bit, to a couple of productivity uh, arguably productivity, maybe anti-productivity uh, applications, but uh, and particularly in consideration of Twitter. But I want to talk about Twitter and Google Docs for just a second. Uh, yes, I'm now in the Twitterverse. And for those who would like to follow me, go right ahead. My username is George Dvorsky, one word. And I cur I'm currently using Twirl as my front end. And it's, it's really cool because it gives you filters. You can search other users and so on. And uh, as I've been using it, it's been really an interesting experience. Um, you know, I, my first thought is that it really is an early precursor to the newosphere, or what is thought to be a, a global consciousness. I mean, you're sitting there on your computer, and suddenly these little pop-ups come out, this random thoughts that people might be having or what they're doing. So you, I know what, you know, so-and-so is doing and what they're up to, or they made a, you know, a humorous quip or what have you. But sometimes as well, you even get a question or a request that, uh, well, what's the answer to this? Or how do I go about that? Or what's the best this for this situation? And so on. And oh, and I, I find myself, oh, you know, answering the question and helping out uh, the, the, this community that's, uh, that I've become a part of. And in a way, this is very much kind of like a, a, a global mind or a hive mind uh, type thing. And uh, it differs from really, it, I mean, you might ask, well, what's that different than, you know, keying in a search in a search engine? Well, I think it's different because you are, in, in fact, interacting with another mind. This is mind-to-mind -mind collaboration, mind-to-mind -mind communication. And you are engaging other individuals, and I think there's there's some value to that. There's there's a, a qualitatively different uh, aspect to that. And as you might have heard as well, there was a fellow, I believe, a journalist in Egypt recently who was arrested, and he used Twitter to just he just simply keyed into his uh, Twitter account, arrested, and uh, apparently his friends and others came to his rescue. So it work has worked in that way as well. So as well, it's it's kept me on target, and, and it's kept me focused and accountable. So for example, I mean, it asks you, what are you doing right now? And I ask myself, well, what am I doing right now? And one thing that I'm always conscious of is my productivity and uh, my ability to both multitask and to focus on given tasks. And uh, if I find that um, I'm unable to really answer that question as to what I'm doing right now and you know, kind of think of it in a cohesive way, then perhaps I'm not managing my time well. So I'm using it to kind of keep myself accountable a bit. 
So that's Twitter, and uh, it's very interesting that way. I'm also uh, seeing how it's going to work uh, from a business perspective. I've already made one business contact through it, and uh, hopefully that can yield a, 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 a genuine prospect. So we'll see. Again, for those of you who don't know, I'm the director of operations for Commune Media. We're a media and uh, marketing and advertisement firm here in Toronto. And our specialty is in content production, particularly for the web. And uh, yeah, I've been using Twitter to kind of see if I can generate some leads there. And speaking of Commune Media, one thing that we've been doing there as well, speaking of collaboration, is Google Docs. And Google Docs, if you don't know it, it's basically, think of it as your Microsoft productivity suite, but better and online. So you've got your your word processing documents, you've got your spreadsheets, you've got your power, like your PowerPoint type presentations, and you access it online and you save your work online. So no matter where you are in the world, as long as you, as long as you have access to the internet, you can check out your stuff. And that's how I've been working. And uh, they've also recently launched, Google has, a feature that allows you to work offline. So you don't necessarily need an internet connection. And certainly if you lose that internet connection, it's not as catastrophic as it used to be. And again, the collaborative possibilities are tremendous. I'm already using it with some of my colleagues, or have proposed it rather, to for us to write papers together, academic papers. Because, I mean, uh, I was working a couple of uh, weeks ago on a paper and um, I had ownership of it and had to track changes. And I thought, this is nuts. What is, what a, this doesn't, this is an outdated way of working. And I've made the proposal that we work on, um, on Google Documents such that, you know, we all have access to the document at any given time. It's always the master that's available. It does track changes on its own. It does its own kind of versioning, which is very powerful. So you don't have any more of these ownership issues and uh, don't have to track changes in that primitive sense. You can always go back or revert back to previous versions if you want. So very, very powerful stuff. And it gets literally gets better by the day as they work to get the bugs out. It's still beta, I will warn you. It has some quirks, but the quirks haven't been severe enough such that uh, we haven't, um, we haven't uh, considered stopping to use it. All right, so there you go. Uh, my better human, or sorry, my, oh, and better humans, yes. Interesting. Slip of the tongue there led me to the next topic that I'd like to talk about. We sold better humans to James Clement. As some of you might have seen on the on my blog and on Better Humans, we sold it to uh, James, who is the executive director of the World Transhumanist Association, and he's the COO of Maximum Life. Great guy, a great guy to sell the site to. You know, he's going to take it over. He's going to manage it. He's going to reinvent it. Something that Simon Smith and myself simply have not had the time and the energy to do, given our latest focus on commune media. It's been our neglected child, and we're very glad that somebody's now going to take care of that child. And uh, like I like I said, uh, it's with some sadness that I see the site change hands, but I realize it is for uh, it's 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 going to be to a good guy. I've been working on Better Humans since pretty much the beginning uh, as the deputy editor. Basically, was a, a way for me to first express some of my transhumanist ideas and get my articles out there. And at its height, it was a thing of beauty. We had some great columnists, columnists out there. Some great reports were put out. We got a lot of attention. We won awards. But it just we just could not turn it into a revenue generating model for whatever reason. And uh, we're now working at Commune Media and getting that off the ground. So there you go. Things change. Things always change. So better humans sold to James Clement. Okay, I've got two more topics to discuss in this episode. I'm going to address them right after this break. We're going to do male birth control pill, and then after that, uh, back to the Fermi Paradox and what civilizations may do post-singularity. But uh, we'll see you after this track.
There's been considerable media attention surrounding a recent breakthrough in the development of a male birth control pill, what I'll call an MBCP. Well, fact of the matter is that it's still about five to ten years away. You know, it's taking forever for a male's pill to finally come to market. What is taking so long? Why hasn't it already been developed, despite largely favorable opinions towards it? Well, the issue is not as simple as it might first appear. Sure, there are still some technical hurdles to overcome, and I don't want to dismiss those. But the delay in launching an MBCP has definite political, economic, and even sexist components to it. There are, in fact, barriers to entry, disempowering barriers that men should most certainly be aware of, including those set up by sexist women who belittle male reproductive accountability, unfair gender biases, self-serving feminists who refuse to relinquish reproductive power, and the risk-averse Big Pharma. And just as bad, men themselves are also to blame. Far too many guys out there, they've settled on the idea that contraception is a female issue. A lot of men have not yet realized what it will mean to achieve heightened control over their own fertility. Consequently, and quite disturbingly, conversations about the male birth control pill have migrated outside the sphere of male interests. Women will frame the issue as it pertains to their concerns and their needs, while politicians and pharmaceutical companies, they neglect the issue, unwilling to put the investment into it or to take a risk or simply unsure as to what it means to them. Maybe it's a hot potato as far as they're concerned. Ultimately, however, this issue is about men. It's about men gaining fair and equal access to a powerful contraceptive technique that will finally allow them to have the same control over their reproductive processes as women, an outcome that will have a dramatic effect on male interests. So how does this male pill work? Well, an international consortium of physicians recently revealed a formula for what they've called a safe, effective, and reversible hormonal contraception for males. The breakthrough process involves progestin, which is found in women's birth control, interestingly, and the male sex hormone testosterone. Progestin helps suppress ovulation when used in an oral contraceptive, for women, of course, and it appears to function in the same way for men, suppressing the rate and extent of sperm production. Very cool. The developers claim that this contraception, this contraceptive, will be as effective as a vasectomy, which is basically 100% perfect, 99.9%. Now, men, they're going to have to take this pill for about two to three months to deplete their sperm. And if they want to uh, regain their normal levels of fertility, uh, they just still have to go off of it for uh, the same amount of period for about several months. Now, for the most part, both men and women, they seem to be in favor of the male birth control pill. The trouble is the voices of support who largely laud its positive implication, uh, implications. Um, it's a... Uh, it's from the it's coming from the women and the and the feminist cause. Now, I don't mean to begrudge women. There are reasons for wel- welcoming the male pill. It's all good. I think it's great that men and women will finally be able to share the burden of birth control. It'll undoubtedly be a welcome alternative for those women who cannot take the pill, of which there are many. The male birth control will also prove to be a much more reliable method of contraception than condoms and withdrawal, which have worst case failure rates of fifteen and twenty seven percent respectively. It's huge. It'll also be much less invasive and severe than a vasectomy, which can be reversed, but it's very complicated and not always possible. Now, there's also the issue of accessibility. Take a 2004 report from the Reproductive Health Technologies Project. 
they call contraceptive availability an unfinished revolution. And yes, absolutely, we need more contraception and more options. And yes, it will also prove to be an important symbolic gesture that reproductive control has been equalized among the sexes. Now, fundamentally, though, this is an issue about men and how it will impact on their personal reproductive control. In fact, a strong case can be made that the delay in the male pill has been caused by an underdeveloped male movement or men's rights movement. The sense of urgency to develop an MBCP has been quelled by the dissenters and the disconnected. Men need to be aware of those forces that work to prevent the popularization and normalization of a cohesive men's rights movement. The possibility of a male birth control pill has caused a number of women to pause and reflect on the implications. Should women believe a guy who says, trust me, baby, I'm on the pill? Now, most women would likely say no. It's doubtful that women would and should put faith in a man to stick to a strict schedule of birth control pill popping. Men are supposed to be untrustworthy and irresponsible, right? After all, they're not the ones who would have to deal with a pregnancy. Now, aside from what this says about negative male stereotyping, this complaint neglects three fundamental issues. First, people must take control over their own reproductive processes and not rely on the other person. This goes for both men and women. The male birth control pill will finally help men know for certain that they are at virtual zero risk of impregnating a partner, which immediately brings to mind the problem of trust that many men are confronted with today. Should men trust women when they make the same claim? How many times has a man been duped into fatherhood by an opportunistic woman? Well, according to a Cornell University study, over a million American births each year results from pregnancies which men did not intend. Now, what does this say about female reproductive accountability? The male pill will, at the very least, help men better avoid this risk. Second, the male birth control pill strictly deals with contraception. It'll do nothing to prevent the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. The advent of a male birth control pill will not eliminate the need to wear a condom. So ladies, if you're worried about STDs, make sure your guy wears a condom, no matter his reproductive claim. And third, most men do in fact have to deal with a pregnancy and the introduction of a child, be it parental or fiscal responsibilities. Now this may, and the pill may, introduce an unwelcome power shift. Glenn Sachs has said, uh, he's, again, uh, someone interested in, men, in men's rights. He said, power is the reward which comes with responsibility. Indeed, because women have had to bear the burden of contraception, they've gained control over an integral component of human life, that of reproduction. The male birth control pill threatens to wrest that control from women to men. Now, quite understandably, some feminists are concerned about this possibility, and I'm sorry to say, well, that's too bad. Men are currently at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to the choice of reproduction. But this is now set to change. As an example, according to the 2004 National Scruples and Lies Survey, which polled 5,000 women in the UK, 42% of women claimed they would lie about contraception in order to get pregnant, regardless of the wishes of their partners. Other evidence suggests that 10% of children turn out not to be the offspring of the expected father when DNA tests are done, suggesting that many men obliviously help to raise and support children who are not actually theirs. Now, aside from the gross breach of trust and ethical suspiciousness of these problems, there is also the important economic factor. Child support rates are increasing, with some fathers giving their exes as much as 15 to 25% of their take-home pay per child. 
The problem of coerced parenthood also creates a strained and awkward parent-child relationship where the father is compelled to interact with a child you know they really didn't want to have. For those men who truly don't want to have children, something which is completely within their rights, the male pill will help them achieve that level of control. This will be a big step forward for the men's movement and for men in general. And again, female claims that this will allow men to forever shirk their paternal responsibilities and live in perpetual adolescence. Those are not just gross generalizations, but sexist statements of the highest order. Now, quite surprisingly... Big Pharma has dragged their feet in developing the male birth control spill, the male birth control pill. Despite over 20 years of research, they claim that there's a little money to be made. In fact, that's one of the main reasons that the pharmaceutical firms Bayer and Ornon, Organon, well, they abandoned their male pill programs last year. And this is because men are, are not demanding it. Men are clearly not showing Big Pharma that they want a male pill. Research shows that, the, that most males are not ready for personal birth control. Take an MSN Zogby poll, which revealed that only 14% of Americans would definitely take it or insist that their partners take it. I'm sorry, I only have American statistics here. And tellingly, the study indicated that women are slightly more excited about the prospect than men. How interesting. While at the same time, other studies show that men do in fact want alternative contraception options. What's going on here, guys? Well, perhaps confusion and uncertainty has something to do with it. There's a very un underdeveloped sense of a male collective consciousness. It appears that men, for the most part, don't yet realize the importance of reproductive control, something women have, for obvious reasons, been very aware of for some time now. Some men, for example, they'll dismiss the male pill altogether on account of their fear that it would transgress their masculinity, that they wouldn't be a man if they were on the pill. Oh, boy. Oh, brother. Well, this is exactly the mentality that's, it has to be abandoned in place with some more forward-thinking ideas that will work to help equalize not just reproductive options, but other gender issues that set men at a disadvantage or limit biological potential. More than ever, men have been the victims of negative gender, bias, bi negative gender biasing and utterly sexist judi judicial policies that place men at a legal disadvantage to women. Well, the times they are changing. And perhaps I'm understating the fact that 14% of men are ready to use the pill. That's a significant number unto itself. Maybe it's a positive sign that attitudes are changing and that broader acceptance is on its way. In all likelihood, demand will probably increase once the pill is finally made available and becomes more accepted. It will become real for men once it becomes a real option. And hopefully it will wake men up to the possibilities. Issues of gender, sexuality, and reproduction are not just women's issues. They're a vital element of the collective human condition. In my previous two articles about the Fermi Paradox, well, I attempted to reaffirm the paradox, 
and circumscribe some of the possible interstellar activities and developmental aspects of advanced extraterrestrial intelligences, or ETIs. Well, in this um, article now, I will offer two broad solutions to the Fermi paradox. Number one, unavoidable self-destruction. And number two, localized non-migratory existence. Now, it's not my intention at this time to provide a complete list of possible reconciliations, nor am I claiming to have found any one kind of special answer. I'm just trying to explore these two particular possibilities. And at the end of this article, I'm going to offer some suggestions to help us move forward as we work to uh, try to solve the observational problem that is the Great Silence. Okay, self-destruction and the so-called Great Filter. This is the most likely and philosophically satisfying answer to the Fermi Paradox, although hardly the most desirable. Looking at ourselves as a typical example of a pre-singularity civilization, what do we find? Well, we find that we're a species already in possession of apocalyptic technologies and on the verge of developing an entirely new generation of lethal weapons. In short order, we will be required to manage an assortment of apocalyptic technologies. It will be akin to spinning plates. There are only so many that can be managed before one of them falls. And one is all that is needed to end the story. Examples of pending existential risks include the ongoing threat of nuclear holocaust, a nanotechnological disaster, poorly programmed artificial general superintelligence, i.e. the singularity as an extinction event, catastrophic pandemics, and so on. A counter-argument is often made that Self-inflicted catastrophism could never be exclusive to all civilizations. How is it, ask the critics, that all civilizations cannot escape such a fate? The economist Robin Hansen attempted to answer this question by proposing the Great Filter Hypothesis, the suggestion that a developmental stage exists for all life which is insurmountable. The question then, is the Great Filter behind us, or does it await us in our future? I would argue, based on much of the data I presented earlier, that the rare earth hypothesis has to be rejected. Moreover, a healthy application of the self-sampling assumption strongly indicates that the filter is ahead of us should it exist. The galaxy is likely brimming with life, including complex life. Maybe I'm a victim of the anthropic principle and, uh, sorry, a victim of the, of the um, an observational effect, maybe. But I use the self-sampling assumption here to perhaps show the opposite. As for the search for extraterrestrial life, as far as that's concerned, Hansen argues that the detection of ETIs would be bad. Nick Bostrom makes the same claim. In fact, uh, uh, he has an excellent article in, Technolo in Technology Review this week. I highly recommend you take a look at it. Now, this would indicate, should we discover ETs, that our observation of an unperturbed uncolonization... Sorry, let me start that again. Should we discover extraterrestrial intelligences, and given our observation of an unperturbed, uncolonized galaxy, that would be a strong indication that the Great Filter is indeed still ahead of us. Another disturbing data point as a self-sampling species is that we here on Earth have come to possess apocalyptic technologies long before we've developed the capacity to live off-planet or live in self-contained biospheres. All our eggs are in one basket, and they will continue to remain that way into the foreseeable future. And then there's the disturbing doomsday argument, which suggests that we're closer to the end than the beginning of human civilization. 
perhaps the most common and smug solution of the Fermi paradox is the suggestion that we are the first. It's frequently used because it's said to best satisfy Occam's razor. But while it may be the simplest solution, it defies our sense of probability and disregards the central lesson of the Copernican principle, the idea that we are not unique and very likely a typical example. Now, earlier in my previous articles, I presented a picture of a biophilic universe. Now, this issue is to be settled by a battle between Occam's razor and the Copernican principle. On this matter, I will take Copernicus any day. Interestingly, the longer we survive as a species without extraterrestrial contact, the more we can assume that we have passed the great filter. All right, now, that's the bad news. Here is the good news. There's a possibility for a localized, non-migratory digital digital existence. Now, the prospect of human extinction, that's quite obviously mere speculation. As Morpheus proclaimed in The Matrix, we are still here. Consequently, there are some non-extinction scenarios that I would like to explore. The past 40 years of scientific progress has forced a reevaluation of humanity's potential. We appear to be headed for a transformation that takes us away from biological existence and towards a post-biological or digital existence. Our future visions must take this into account. As Milan Sirkovic and Robert Bradbury have noted, we need to adopt a digital perspective. Why leave the local system when everything can be accomplished at home? Localized existence may hold the promise for all the aspirations that an advanced intelligence could conceivably conjure. Specifically, advanced intelligences may engage in computational megaprojects and live virtual reality existences. It would be an existential phase transitioning into virtual space such that interstellar colonization would never emerge as a feasible option or experiment. For example, advanced ETIs may construct Jupiter and matryoshka brains. A Jupiter brain would utilize all the matter of an entire planet for the purpose of computation, while a Matryoshka brain, which is a kind of a Dyson sphere, would utilize the energy output of its parent star. Okay, now determining an upper bound for computational power is difficult, but a number of thinkers have given it a shot. Eric Drexler has outlined a design for a system the size of a sugar cube that could perform 10 to the power 21 instructions per second. Robert Bradbury gives a rough estimate of 10 to the power 42 operations per second for a computer with a mass on order of a large planet. Seth Lloyd calculates an upper bound for a one kilogram computer of five to the power of 10 to the power of 50 logical operations per second carried on in about a 10 to the power of 31 bits. Huge. This would be likely done in a quantum computer or computers built out of nuclear matter or plasma. Big ideas. Now, more radically, John Barrow has demonstrated that under a very strict set of cosmological conditions, indefinite information processing can exist in an ever-expanding universe. That would be great news, actually, although I doubt, severely doubt that it's true. Now, this type of computational power is astounding, and it defines human comprehension. It's like imagining a universe within a universe, if not universes within universes within universes. And that may be precisely, though, how these computers are used. Well, what would a future civilization do with all this computational power? A civilization's transition into high-speed digital mode may come about as a natural consequence of its development. The switch from an analog civilization to a digital one, one in which the clock speed would be accelerated to billions if not trillions of times faster than before, would preclude the desire to interact with the outside world. Megascale computers may be used to support uploaded civilizations. It may prove to be the existential substrate of choice, one in which the potential for self-destruction is greatly mitigated. Now, advanced SIBs may also use this computer power to run simulations for reasons of scientific research, running ancestor simula simulations, or for entertainment purposes. 
Simulations may also be run as part of some sort of ethical or sociological necessity. Another possibility is the hedonistic imperative, a term attributed to David Pierce. Given that virtually every religion has fantasized about an afterlife of bliss and an end to suffering, paradise engineering may come to represent the optimal end state for intelligent life. Ultimately, societies will always be comprised of conscious individuals. The optimization of subjective experience may take precedence over colonial ambitions, particularly if survival is at stake and can be ensured. Now, this tendency may be part of a broader, more existential focus on life. Civilizational achievement may not be measured by the rate of imperialistic expanse or by how much energy it can consume, but in how individuals relate to themselves and their place in the universe. This quest for introspective enlightenment may be characterized by efforts to optimize the mode of conscious experience. Now, what about long-term survival? That's a fair question. Now, in regards to long-term survival, Werner Vinge has predicted that post-singularity intelligences would build local secondary systems to ensure that near immortality, to ensure the near immortality of the info complex. These could exist in off-planet repositories. Shields composed of nanotechnology and femtotechnology could deal with the issue of gamma-ray bursters and other cosmological threats. As for the local star, it could be given added life through stellar engineering, projects in which the crucially low elements are reintroduced. Eventually, however, migration to a younger star would be necessary. There may also be unknown reasons for this type of existence, but what is certain is that wide-scale galactic colonization is not in the cards. Okay, moving forward. Admittedly, these two broad solutions, that of self-destruction and non-migration, they are unsatisfactory. The notion that not even one civilization can escape self-destruction is difficult to believe. Moreover, localized digital existence and the proliferation of colonization waves are not either-or scenarios. One can imagine a civilization embarking on both paths. All you got to do is live your happy digital existence and launch some von Neumann probes. As we move forward in attempting to solve the Fermi paradox, we need to apply much stricter methodologies to the problem. Solutions to the Fermi paradox must avoid the trappings of sociological analyses, which often present non-exclusive scenarios. Answers like the zoo hypothesis, non-interference, or they wouldn't find us interesting, tend to be projections of the human psyche and our own modern-day realities. Moreover, these sorts of solutions, while they may account for some of the actions of advanced civilizations, they cannot account for all. Instead, a more rigid and sweeping methodological frame needs to be applied, one which takes cosmological determinism, and sociological uniformitarianism into account. In other words, we need to be concerned with cosmological limits and the pressure of physical and resource constraints. What I was talking earlier, back in the introduction, about, uh, or during my, uh, my talk about my, um, my transhumanist talk at the inquiry, center of inquiry, uh, adaptationism, and this is what Nick Bostrom has referred to as the strong convergence hypothesis, the idea that all sufficiently advanced civilizations converge towards the same optimal state. This is a hypothesized developmental tendency akin to a Dawkinsian fitness peak, the suggestion that identical environmental stressors, limitations, and attractors will compel intelligences to settle around optimal existential modes. And this theory does not favor the diversification of intelligence, at least not outside a very strict set of living parameters. The trick will be to predict what these deterministic constraints are. One can imagine factors such as limited resources, access to energy, computational requirements, including heat dissipation, error correction, and latency problems. And self-preservational modes, i.e. political and social, social orientations that eliminate the possibility of self-destruction. 
As a side benefit of this exercise, it is that it doubles as a foresight activity. The better we become at predicting the makeup of advanced ETIs, the better we will be at predicting our own future. Consequently, our very own survival may depend on it. And that concludes my three-part series on the Fermi Paradox. Again, as a, that was what I was speaking about at Transvision last year. And uh, that also concludes this episode. All right, as always, I will let you know what tracks I played in that back, back in the, earlier in the episode. The first track was the brand new Russian Circles track from their new CD station, and the track title was called Campaign. Very much looking forward to becoming more familiar with that album. Second track was from Iceland's Sihur Ros, and the track was entitled Samsketi, and that's off their uh, Havarf Heim CD from last year. And the last track was Saltillo and their track A Necessary End. As always, I hope you enjoyed those tracks, add a bit of color and life to the episode. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was a long one. There's a lot of stuff in there. And uh, as usual, I will work to uh, keep working on my blog and to get the, the next podcast out there. I know there was a delay this time. I think I took a bit of a two to three week break, but uh, hey, I'm you know back on track with the podcast. As long as I get to it a fairly regular um, uh, frequency, I, I figure it's all good. And uh, also uh, check out my blog. It's it's been given a, a brand new front end. I've uh, long long overdue, but it looks looking better, looking sharper. If you have any comments about it, do let me know. I've also changed my email address. I'm now George at sentientdevelopments.com. George at sentientdevelopmentsoneword.com. Okay, that's enough babbling on for today. Once again, thank you for joining me for today's episode, and I will see you on the next podcast. And until then, bye-bye.